0: Will you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians 5. And we're going to be looking at a passage there. We want everybody to be able to see what we're looking at. So if you need a Bible, these guys have some. They're going to make their way to the back, and they'll get one to you that's marked already for you at 1 Thessalonians 5. You can keep that Bible as our gift to you. We want everybody to own a copy of God's Word. As we begin this new year of ministry together, I want to take the first several weeks to set our minds on the task ahead and the privilege that we have of being a part of the mission that God is carrying out in his world through his church. So beginning today and for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at what as the church we are to be in our mission, in our relationships, and in our service together. In a series that I'm calling Life in the Father's House. Now I've asked you to turn to 1 Thessalonians 5 because the church to whom the letter of 1 Thessalonians was written is called in chapter 1 and verse 7 a model church. That verse says you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now I know I'm biased, but I believe that God has given us a model church here at CBC One that has been and will be an encouragement to other churches, both near and far, regarding how the church is to be and how it's to pursue the Lord's mission. And yet, despite all the things that by God's grace were doing right, and that that church in Thessalonica was doing right, they and we needed and need to be reminded of some things. To be taught some others. To be warned regarding dangers and encouraged to abound in our good work together. And that's why in this letter to this model church, in chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. And then down in verse 9 of that chapter. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. In fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Toward the end of the letter that contains the kinds of things that I've mentioned, reminders and teaching and warning and encouragement. At the end in chapter five, we're given some very practical instruction regarding our relationships with one another. After all, if the church is to be the church and if the church is going to be a model for others, whether in Thessalonica or in Trenton. Then it will in large part depend on the quality of our relationships because remember friends the church is not the building it's God's people united together to carry out God's objectives and so the church God's people need to know how to live and serve together in the father's family what the bible calls God's household the church 1st Timothy chapter 3 says this I'm writing so that people will know how to conduct themselves in God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, you know, friends, I said, I think we have a a good, in fact, model church here. Thank the Lord. But our church is not perfect. It would be perfect if it weren't for people. But of course, without people, you have no church. And where you do have people, sinful, struggling people, you will have issues that arise and the health of the church will be determined by whether those issues that inevitably arise are handled in a beneficial or in a detrimental way. Now, we all believe that in theory. Everybody here, I'm quite sure, does. But it's putting it into practice that's so difficult, isn't it? One poet said, To dwell above with saints we love, well, that will be grace and glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. And the passage we're going to consider today deals with the categories of crucial relationship in the church and how we're to pursue each of them. We're going to see a a passage in chapter 5 that tells us about the relationship between pastors to people, people to their pastors, and then people to people. Verse 12 of chapter 5. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. But always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we come to this new year as your church, and we are your church, we want to prepare ourselves to pursue your work, and it is your work, in a way that's consistent with your character, pleasing to you, and effective in its results. So, Lord, none of this can be done without you. None of this can be done without the aid of your Holy Spirit and the instruction of your word. So we ask you, Lord, to instruct us from your word. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to move on our hearts so that we are open to it, convicted as need be by it, and changed thereby. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, we have for you an outline as we do each week. Today, it's on the back of your program, the very back. We're going to see a couple of things if we have time. We may only see one, the first one. We'll see how the time goes. I have two major points for you in that outline, the first of which is this. Pastors and people must minister to one another. Pastors and the people in the congregation must minister to one another. And first in this passage, we're going to see the ministry of pastors to God's people. There is that ministry. We will see something about it in a moment. But it's a shame that this relationship between pastor and people is often so strained in many churches. The fact is, it's God's design to have shepherds for God's sheep. And yet in a survey of 3000 people who left their church, most said they didn't like the pastor. In addition, did you know that the average tenure for a pastor in an evangelical church in America is just over three years? And very often they leave because they can no longer stand the people. So let us see if we can't identify some responsibilities for both pastors and people in the church that will help us obey God and avoid fitting those kinds of awful statistics. Verse 12 begins to tell of the responsibilities that pastors are to fulfill. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you. And I say in your outline, what that means is that line is that pastors should serve God's people. Pastors should serve God's people. Now I say serve because the word that's translated work in verse 12 is one that means to sweat and toil to the point of exhaustion. Most of you know the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And there is another Greek word often used for work, which is general. It refers to work of any kind, whether it's easy work or difficult work. But the word in this passage refers to difficult, wearisome work. And that's why the NIV says they work hard. Pastors are to give themselves fully to many tasks that God has assigned to them. To counseling, to administration, to planning. But the most important work is ministry of prayer and the word. And any good pastor will spend many hours every week in those tasks. The work of pastoring is not something that you just punch in and out of. You go to work at the right time and you leave at the right time and you receive your paycheck. It's not that kind of work. It's not something that you can simply leave at the office. And so the person who has signed up to be a pastor has signed up for work. Joyful work most of the time. But work nevertheless. And he's to serve God's people in that work. And the passage tells us that the sphere in which that work takes place in verse 12 is they work hard among you. They work hard among you. There's a difference between preaching and pastoring. Preaching is not the sum total of pastoring. Preaching is one very important and priority task that a pastor performs. But pastoring shepherding requires that he be around the sheep among you. Is how this ministry takes place. I heard a guy say of his pastor, he teaches us the word and he smells like sheep. And that's because he's around the flock. And I've known pastors who are who are not content with the ministry that they have at the church that God has given them. Instead they aspire to be conference speakers. And the church is simply the means to pay their salary to do it. Now, if God gives a man a wider ministry, of course, that's fine. But his primary responsibility is to serve the flock in the local church at which he's the pastor. Let me just kick this dog as an aside as I'm going. That, you know, the TV preacher or the radio preacher is not your pastor. Did you know that? And many of us sometimes mistake that. We've got our guy, he's our guy. We always talk about our guy, whoever our guy is. But the radio or TV preacher is not your pastor. They don't know you. They will not be at the hospital when you're ill. They will not bury your dead. They will not marry your children. You have a pastor and that pastor or pastors, as the case may be, are to be devoted to the flock that God has assigned them to. Pastors, then, are to serve God's people, work hard among them. But secondly, in your outline, pastors should not only serve, they should lead God's people. Pastors should lead God's people. Verse 12 again, acknowledge those who work hard among you, and then notice who care for you in the Lord. The phrase care for you is not simply that the pastor empathizes with you, that he cares about what's going on in your life. Of course, that should be true. But rather, the word that's translated care means to have oversight responsibility. It's sometimes translated those who are over you in the Lord or those who have charge over you. The care of the pastor is carried out in his oversight responsibility for the church. And that's why one title for a pastor in the New Testament is an overseer or in the King James Version, a a bishop. And you actually have three titles that are used synonymously and, and interchangeably for the same office in the New Testament. We have a couple of, example of this, examples of this in your New Testament. One is in Acts chapter 20, where Paul had spent three years. And at the end of his time there, he calls the elders, plural together, and he has a farewell to them. And in that farewell, in Acts chapter 20, here's what the Bible tells us. Paul sent for the elders of the church. And then here's what he says to them. Keep watch over yourselves. And all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you now notice overseers. That you have been made overseers. And so he's talking to the elders. Those elders are overseers, same people. And then he says to those elders, overseers, be shepherds of the church of God. Now, there in that one passage, you have these three titles for the same office. You have elder, and that's a Greek word presbyteros. We get presbyter from that. And then you've got overseer. That's episkopos. We get episcopalian uh, and translated in the King James Version bishop from that. And then you have this word shepherds, which comes from poimen or pastor. So you've got all three of those elder, Or bishop overseer and pastor and they're all the same guys so it is not as developed in church history where you have these different offices in a hierarchy it's one office with different titles you have the same thing in first peter chapter five peter says this to the elders be shepherds of god's flock that is under your care serving as overseers all three of those And again, all three of those apply to the same persons. Now, just as an aside, the most common word used for the office in the Bible is elder. And most often it's plural. That is, there's more than one elder. Having more than one elder, pastor, overseer in a church is good for a number of reasons, even if one among them is designated as the senior pastor. Whenever possible, a church, when a church has qualified men to serve as elders, pastors, overseers, it should have more than one. Last year, our associate pastor moved to Jacksonville, but we're looking to add pastoral staff this year and possibly more than one. So more to come on that in the months, in the months ahead. Now, that word overseer, one of those three terms then for the office of the pastor, the elder, the overseer. That word overseer is a word that means to stand before, to stand at the head of. In fact, in the second century of the church, the one who gave the sermon was called the president. So feel free. Call me President Brown if you or Bishop Brown or any of those. That's why in the New Testament then pastors are said to direct the affairs of the Church and to have authority to which God's people submit. First Timothy five says this elders direct the affairs of the church. And famously Hebrews thirteen says, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, I need to quickly add here. Authority can be abused and has been abused. And so the Bible is careful to proscribe the realm of the pastor's authority. It's not unlimited authority. It's not whatever he feels like doing. In 1 Timothy five seventeen that we saw just a bit ago, their authority is limited to the, quote, affairs of the church. In our passage, in verse 12 of 1 Thessalonians 5, they care for you and are over you, notice, in the Lord. And so pastors do not have authority outside the work of the Lord and the parameters of his word. And so contrary to the authoritarian approach that many have taken, pastors cannot dictate personal decisions that do not impact the work of the church. But pastors are called to serve God's people and to lead God's people. And then thirdly in your outline, pastors should feed God's people. Serve and lead and feed. The last part of verse 12 says that pastors... Admonish you. That word admonish is sometimes translated counsel or instruct, or as we're going to see when we get to verse 14, warn. The pastor's admonition, his counsel, his encouragement, his warning are from the word of God. It's the word of God that the shepherd is to feed to the sheep. And that's why one of the professional qualifications for one who would be a pastor is that he be someone who is Able to teach according to 1st Timothy 3 and 2nd Timothy chapter 2. A healthy church is characterized by pastors who minister to God's people in the ways described. They serve and they lead and they feed. But it also requires this other thing that we have in your outline. It requires the ministry of God's people to pastors. So it's the ministry of pastors to the congregation and then the ministry of the congregation to pastors. And verse 12 says, we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you. And I have that in your outline this way, that God's people should appreciate their pastors. God's people should appreciate their pastors. That word acknowledge is sometimes translated respect. Or And it has the idea of intimate knowledge of a person that results in respect because of what you know about them, because of their character and because of their work. Scripture has very certain qualifications for church leaders. Church leaders are to be of exemplary character. It's true of pastors, but it's also true of deacons as well. In fact, the qualifications for deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3 are almost identical, virtually identical to those for for pastors. Now, in our churches, we take this much too lightly. In many of our churches, we nominate people to be in leadership simply because he's a good guy. Or simply because he knows a lot about business and so he'll know how to run the church. But the Bible has very definite character qualifications for those who would be leaders, both elders and for deacons. I'm glad to be able to tell you that at our church, we take this very seriously. And I mentioned that this year we're looking to add pastoral staff, but we're looking to add deacons to our leadership team this year as well. And in order for someone to be nominated and brought before the congregation, to be voted on, to be part of our leadership team, they have to have been vetted to meet those qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. And to make sure that that's the case, we actually have an evaluation form. An evaluation form that goes to people who have served with that individual in the church and people who know the individual outside of the church. Because one of the qualifications is to have a good reputation with those who are outside, even unbelievers. And so we take that very seriously. God's people then should appreciate those who meet those qualifications. And secondly, it even goes further, does the passage. God's people should esteem their pastors. Verse 13 says this. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work some translations say esteem them highly so how do you do this how do you appreciate and esteem your pastors well note the reason given in verse 13 for that appreciation and for that esteem it says at the end of verse or in verse 13 because of their work the work of the pastors we've already seen is the word of god prayer, and the oversight of God's church. And so in order to fulfill what verse 13 says as a congregation to pastors, then we need to ask ourselves, do do we appreciate, do we esteem that kind of work? The word of God, prayer, overseeing this most important institution on earth, God's church. If we do, then it will not be hard to appreciate and esteem those Who give themselves to that work. Now practically speaking. If that work is esteemed. Then it means a few other things that the Bible says. And that I can say from personal experience. This church does very very well. One of the things that we're going to to show you in just a moment. That the Bible says if we esteem the work of the pastor. Is that you're willing to pay the pastor. Now, I'm standing up here talking about pay for the pastor. And I'm only doing that because the Bible talks to it. I'll talk to it, and then I'll get off it. But I don't have to talk about it much because this church does and always has done that very well. 1 Timothy chapter 5. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Now, that phrase, double honor, in the context, the next verses say, do not muzzle the ox who treads out the grain. And it's a context in which double honor refers actually to pay. Now, as I say, this church has always done that. And I want to publicly thank you. I want to publicly thank the leaders of our church and our leadership team for the fact that our family has never wanted, by God's grace, for anything. Because you've always been generous, very generous to us. So that's one of the practical outworkings of that esteem. And as I say, this church does that extremely well. And then there is another practical outworking found in Hebrews 13, to which we alluded earlier. Obey your leaders, submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. And then it says obey them so that their work will be a joy and not a burden For that would be of no advantage to you. This following the direction of those God has placed in leadership so that their work is a joy and not a burden is again something that this church has done extremely, extremely well. In 14 years of the existence of this church now, can you believe it's been that long? 14 years. It has been a great ride for us. It's been a great time for me and for my family in large part because of the wonderful people that God has brought to this place who make the work a joy and not a burden. Encouragement that makes the work a joy and not a burden. And you have done that very well, and I thank this dear congregation. There's one other practical thing I would ask of you in this regard. In addition to these wonderful things that you're doing and have done for all these years, One other thing I would ask of you is that you make sure you have your pastors back. Make sure I'm asking you to always be careful that you have your pastors back. And I'm saying that because the pastoral position is, believe it or not, a vulnerable position in many ways. Because the most important thing that you have is your reputation. And that can be destroyed if people do not have your back. Did you know that? Now, I ask your indulgence as I do something that I rarely do. In fact, I don't think I've ever done this. But I think it's important for us as we prepare for this new year. As I've said, CBC has been wonderful to me and my family for 14 years. I can honestly say that I've truly loved every minute of my time here. Until this past year. Now set your minds at ease. All is good. Thanks be to the Lord and his grace. But this was the most difficult year I've had. Now why? Why this year of all years? Well do you understand dear friends. That Satan hates what God is doing here Do we understand that? We need, as we start 2016, to firmly understand Satan hates what God's doing here. These past two years have seen the most significant growth in our church in our 14 years. In the past two years, we've had 150 people and their children become members of our church. So let me remind you of what the Bible says about the church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 6, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose. Go figure. Go figure that as the work of God is moving forward, something would happen. And many of you have heard me warn of this many, many, many times over the years. That as our church continues to move forward, there is someone who hates that. Let us be careful that we don't allow a foothold. And as the number of disciples is increasing, sure enough. This past year, there was talk about me that spread to some inside and outside our church before it was brought to my attention. My wife and I had the opportunity in November to attend a pastors and wives retreat. And at that retreat, one of the pastors there said, it's his experience that Satan will go after three sets of people. First, he'll go after the pastor. If he can't get the pastor, he'll go after his wife. If he can't get the pastor or his wife, he'll go after their children. And the Bible recognizes... The vulnerability of a pastor's reputation. And that's why it says in 1 Timothy 5: Do not entertain an accusation unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. But there was talk about me that was being spread. But our gracious God intervened before it could become a full-blown issue. Now, how did that intervention go? Before I tell you about the intervention, just let me tell you, you know, the issue was not, you're all going, wow, what'd you do? I mean, you must have done something really big. Apparently, that money wasn't enough for you. You had your hand in the till. <clears throat> Were you running around? Uh, nothing. None of that. None of that. Somebody didn't like me and didn't like something I did. Period. So set your minds at ease on that, not some moral issue. But there was talk that was spread, but our gracious God intervened before, as I say, it could become a full blown issue. That intervention came in the form of a brother who had my back. Having heard the gossip that was being spread, he demanded the issue be taken to me. It was we were able to get it straightened out, but not before several had been spoken to, as I said, both inside and outside our church. Now, I'm glad to say that forgiveness for that unedifying talk has been sought and granted and it's now behind us. But it had great potential for harm. The reason I'm bringing it up to you on this first Sunday of 2016 is so that we will be resolved that will never happen again. Because God was gracious to us. But remember friends, grace is undeserved. And God could have allowed that to just go. And then before you know it, you have James chapter 3. The tongue is like a spark that can set an entire forest on fire. God intervened. And the only year of 14 where that kind of thing has happened. And it's a matter of God's grace that he intervened. And it's a matter of God's grace as well. Because think about it. 14 years, if that's the worst you've had, it's been a good run. And I thank God for that. And I also thank God that he taught me some valuable lessons. Some very valuable lessons through this year of 2015. So here's what I ask you then, friends. I don't ask you to agree with me. All the time, because I'm not always right. I don't ask you to flatter me by telling me what a great guy I am and all of that. My self-esteem is intact. I don't have to have a bunch of that either. I don't ask you to agree. I don't ask you to flatter me. I simply ask you to protect my reputation by having my back. If someone talks to you about me or any of the other leaders in this church, or frankly, anyone in this church, then your response is to be this, we're going to go talk to them together. And that kills it. Did you know that? That kills it. You get the parties in the same room, it's over with. You can't spread that anymore. It's going to have to be dealt with. If we will do that for one another, Satan cannot use that as a wedge and a foothold. And this church is positioned now To move ahead and do great things for Christ. The only thing that can get in the way of that. Is if we allow that to happen. And if you have been at our celebration dinners over the years. You know that every single year I say to you. Every single year. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3. Make every effort. To keep the unity of the spirit. Thank you for that indulgence. Now I move on. A healthy church has ministry of pastors to people and people to pastors. And then in your outline, there's the ministry of pastors and people together. The mutual responsibility of pastors and people is summarized at the end of verse 13. Live in peace with each other. Peace is the tranquility and contentment that comes because things are in their proper place. They're in order. It results from obedience to the preceding commands that we've seen. If pastors fail to carry out their responsibilities to the church or the church to the pastors, it results in disharmony and the work of the Lord is stymied. But this peace is, of course, not automatic. And that's why, as I quoted, Ephesians tells us to be diligent in maintaining the unity of the spirit. It's not automatic. We have to be ever vigilant to maintain it. Just think about, friends, how many times you've heard of a church having conflict. In fact, I would hazard to guess there are many people in this room who have experienced personally church conflict. How many times that happens? And Scripture presents many times the presence of strife amongst God's people. The absence of this peace that we're called to. One writer cataloged some of the strife that's given in the Bible. The young church's first recorded conflict concerned the complaint of Grecian widows, that the Hebraic widows were receiving favorable treatment in the daily food distribution. That was the Acts 6 incident that we alluded to earlier. The Apostle Paul publicly rebuked Peter for an open prejudice toward Gentile believers. Those who still believed in circumcision criticized Peter for bringing the gospel to Gentiles in Acts chapter 11. The same issue caused, quote, a sharp dispute and debate In Acts chapter 15, that was the occasion of the first church council and much discussion amongst the leaders. A sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas over whether to take Mark on their journey caused them to go separate ways. The Corinthian church verged on a split with factions campaigning for their different leaders. That division was widened when brothers went to court against each other. And some declined to share their food with others at their Of all things, love feasts. Two factions developed in Rome over dietary laws and observance of special days. A disagreement between two women in Philippi brought an appeal from Paul in his letter to that church, and he named those two women by name. Hints of conflict are seen in several more places in the New Testament. Paul referred to the Galatians, quote, biting and devouring one another. He felt it necessary to instruct the Philippians to, quote, do everything without grumbling or arguing. James implied the presence of battles when he asked the source of their fightings and quarrels among you. A lust for preeminence led Diotrephes to throw brothers out of the church and for John to call him out in the letter of 3 John. Conflict amongst people. The lack of this live at peace with everyone that the end of verse 13 tells us to pursue. Humorously, a motorist asked a boy where the Baptist church in town was located. The boy said, go one block south and you'll see a church on the corner. That's the United Church. Go one block more and you'll come to a church that's not united. That's the Baptist church. You know, we could, we could laugh more heartily if it weren't so true and so very dangerous. And so we've seen the relationship and mutual responsibilities of pastor and people. And then in verses 14 and 15, we're given instruction on how we're to serve each other within the congregation. Now, I'm just going to make an introductory remark about this, and then I'll continue it next week with that second major point. I told you I probably wouldn't get to it. But notice verses 14 and 15. We urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Now, here's what I want you to notice. Those verses are addressed to the brothers and sisters in the congregation. That is this responsibility now for warning and encouraging and helping and being patient. That responsibility is a responsibility for the entire congregation. Brothers and sisters. All of us are to do this. So in verse 14, we're given instruction on how to deal with people in different conditions, and all of us are told to participate in that. Now, you might wonder how you can do that. Do you have to be a professional counselor, a trained counselor, to help somebody in the various situations that they're in? Hear this. If you know the Word of God and you love your brothers and sisters, you can and you must offer instruction to them In the situations in which they find themselves. Notice what Romans 15 says. I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct. That's that same word for counsel, warn, admonish one another. You are competent to counsel in the words of a title of a famous book. If you know the word of God and you have the best interest of your brothers and sisters at heart. Now, there are situations that require that you, as it were, kick it upstairs because the problem's egregious and difficult. And so you need somebody else to deal with it. I get that. But this is a call to all of the congregation to help one another in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. And we have as well Colossians 3 and verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you, each of you in the congregation, teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. That word admonish, there it is again. And so we are going to see next week that all of us are called together as God's people if we're going to be the church to minister to one another. Now hold off then on the take home truth that's at the bottom of your outline until next week. Let's ask God than to help us, friends, to resolve this first Sunday of 2016 that we are determined to be the church in this coming year. And if we are the church in our relationships with one another, in our singular focus on the mission to which God has called us, then there is nothing that can get in the way of the progress of God's mission through CBC except CBC itself. Let's determine, then, that we're going to be obedient, and let's look forward to what God's going to do. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the instruction of your word. The candid, real-life instruction that we read there. About life in the Father's house with sinners and strugglers like us. We thank you, Lord, that you give us the unvarnished truth in your word, and we see the existence of difficulty and strife. But you don't leave us there with the narrative of the bad things that have happened and the difficulties that arise, but rather you instruct us as to how those things can and must be avoided in order for us to be the church, in order for us to have a witness to a watching world So that Jesus said on the night before he died, by this will all men know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. Lord, we require then the instruction of your word and obedience to your word in order for that love to be maintained and be made visible. And only your Holy Spirit can bring that about in our lives. So, Holy Spirit, I ask you to work on our hearts and minds. Right now, in the sacred moment, in this coming week, and in the coming years together. You have brought us together to bring glory to yourself, to manifest your character in the assembly of your people. Help us, Lord, to be people who are absolutely committed to cherishing what you cherish. And you cherish those for whom Christ died. Help us to treat each other that way. May we show a love that is extraordinary and attractive, and as a result, may your church be unified, and may it move forward for your glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.